Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. Back in the summer, you may remember, I reported on a group of Italian farmers who are working to select new varieties of orange tomatoes. That project was possible because a year ago now, the European Union passed a new regulation allowing people to market seeds of what they call organic heterogeneous material. OHM, organic heterogeneous material, means that the individual seeds don't have to be genetically identical to one another, and it's a pretty big deal. See, until now, all crop varieties in the EU had to be uniform, all the individual plants essentially the same. The new regulation allows a certain amount of diversity, and that's particularly important for organic growers who use biodiversity to help them control pests and diseases and to cope with climate change. Anyway, the new regulation's been a long time coming, and one of the groups leading the campaign for organic heterogeneous material is Let's Liberate Diversity, a network of organic associations. They recently held their 10th annual meeting in Budapest, and I went along to listen to stories about how different farmers and groups are making use of their newfound freedom to grow whatever varieties they want. One of the most fascinating talks was by Lucas van den Abele, who works for Three Fountains Brewery in Beersel, near Brussels. He said something that stopped me in my tracks. Only 8% of Belgian beer uses Belgian ingredients. Yeah, indeed. Even even way less than 8%, we're maybe at 3 to 4% in total. So I always tell the people we're very proud of our Belgian beer, but there's not many Belgian ingredients in Belgian beer, as the cereals are all imported. The hops are often imported too. The yeasts come from, from, from the industry, um, and so it's the water mainly. Three Fountains is out to change that. It's a very old, traditional brewery that brews Gers, which is a very particular kind of beer. So Drifontenen Brewery is um, a very old, traditional brewery, um, and it's so special in its way that it makes um, lambic beers, it brews lambic beers, through a natural fermentation process, let's say. And so that means that we won't add any yeast to the beer, but that we leave the beer in the open air and that the natural yeast and bacteria from the air come into the beer. And so once that's done, the beer goes into barrels, oak barrels, and we leave it for a very, very slow and long process uh, fermentation up to three years. Afterwards, we will select different barrels, a barrel from typically one-year-old, two-year-old and three-year-old. We will blend them together, put them in a bottle, leave it for six months in a bottle re-fermenting, and that makes the geuze. So the geuze is always a blend of three lambics from different ages. And it's quite sour. I mean, I liked it, but um, it, it's quite a, an acquired taste. It is a special taste. People who are not uh, used to drink this type of beer wouldn't even think of beer sometimes. Uh, it has this, indeed, this, this sour taste, but it's much more than just the sourness, sure. uh, than just the acidity. But indeed, this spontaneous fermentation, this, this, this natural yeast and bacteria make that 
uh, another taste appears. And then the fact that it's such a slow process that it really takes up to three years' time uh, makes that all these different varieties of, of microorganisms will develop their own taste and aromas and, 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 and values, which makes it a very diverse beer. So you're working with local farmers rather than buying in your barley and your wheat. So what, what was the impetus to use local grains? We have this very traditional way of brewing and we, we kept being very stubborn on our process. We didn't industrialize it. Um, we didn't accelerate it. Um, but actually the, the link to the farmers got totally lost. And up to five years ago, we didn't know any from, farmer from our region anymore. And so that's why the incentive came to, to rebuild this link and to reconnect to the farmers and to look at who is growing the fields around the brewery and can we connect them, can they grow again the cereals for us. And how's that process work? So it was difficult in the beginning because... Um, as I said, we didn't know these farmers anymore, and so the, there wasn't any trust between the, 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 the farmers didn't know the reality of the brewery, and the brewers didn't know the reality of the farmers. And so it took really a lot of effort and energy to get in touch with these farmers and to gain the trust and to think together of how should we organize ourselves to make this project profitable for everybody. And for example, there was a couple of kind of lock-ins in this system uh, for example, the storage of the cereals, the sieving, the cleaning of the cereals, but also the varieties, which were not really available, the, the good varieties, the organic farming, the knowledge, a lot of the knowledge of the know-how, which was there in ancient times, uh, got lost somehow. And so we really needed to recreate this, this whole link as the, as the food chain, and that's a, a very general thing, as the food chain got so industrialized, it got very fragmented, and so every actor is very independent, very specialized in his thing, but doesn't know the next actor. Kind of. So how did you go about rebuilding this link between the farmers and the brewery and helping them to understand one another? Yeah. So first of all, it was really true practical things. The farmers in the beginning were a bit, um, a bit skeptical. They were like, hmm, this looks a nice project, but not sure if it will really work. And so through inviting the farmers, first of all, to other farmers and have them visit fields and variety collections, that was a first step. But then also, of course, inviting the farmers at the brewery and having the brewers explain the whole story of how they work, how they, how they process the beer. But then the opposite too, of course, inviting the brewers at the farm and having the farmers being proud to be able to tell how they work on their fields, which varieties they use, how is the history of their farm. We recreated um, this, this awareness and this respect for each other's work. So did the brewery know which varieties it wanted the farmers to grow? Or did the farmers say, we're growing these varieties, can you brew with them? No, so actually the situation, especially for the organic farmers, as we were working with organic farmers, is that there were no real organic varieties available. And that's the, that's the industrial system. Actually, the, the modern varieties which are sold on the market as seed are all varieties which are made for conventional farming. Um, and then they are tried in organic farming. And if they perform good enough, they are sold as organic varieties. But they are not made for organic farming. And so this was one of the big issues we, we encountered. The second issue was at the brewery, as we are for making Lambic, we use 
one, uh, one third of raw wheat and two thirds of malted barley. So we use both wheat and barley. And for this raw wheat, it was difficult to find the good uh, properties in the wheat available on the market. And actually, in literature, looking back at the history of the Lambic brewers, we found that there was an old variety, a land race, typical from this region, grown by the farmers for these type of brewers. But this variety, in, in English, it would be translated to the little red wheat from Brabant, which is the, the area. Um, this variety, we went looking after it in all the seed banks all over the world, even to the US, USA and, and in England and in, in France and in Germany, everywhere. We couldn't find it. And so that was a very sad thing. And so together with the farmers, as there was both this issue at the brewery and at the field, uh, we said, okay, let's do variety trials. Let's um, try different uh, land traces, different old varieties, not specific from this region, but from regions close by with maybe similar properties, and have a selection together with the farmers, kind of participatory breeding, participatory selection rather, um, to identify which varieties are most suited for the farmers, they are happy with, and really with their own criteria. So this would be like the first testing phase, and the varieties who would behave the best at the farmers, and so the farmers would select them themselves, saying, okay, we go on with this and this and this variety. These varieties, we would multiply them up to 300 kilos to be able to brew one beer. Uh-huh. And so the second trial was the brewing trial and seeing if those varieties who were selected by the farmers would be also selected by the brewers. And did you find one, two, five? How many varieties did the farmers and the brewers kind of agree on? In total, on the fields, we tried maybe up to 70 or 80 varieties, so a lot. But some of them, we only tried them one year on two square meters. And if the first year they were extremely uh, um, susceptible to diseases, we wouldn't sow them again. So, I mean, we need to be practical and we need to move forward. And so um, I think still we did maybe 30 trials at the brewery. So 30 different varieties we, we, we have grown up. Um, the problem is, as the seed, if we get it from the seed bank, we get 5 grams, which is exactly 100 kernels. This we need to sow it on one square meter. It takes five years before having 300 kilos. But on these five years, we learn a lot. That's interesting. And afterwards, brewing our beer takes also three years and a half. But so we did a lot of brewing tests, but we are not at the end of the whole trial. So it's difficult now to say which varieties are really standing out. Um, We haven't really selected one variety. The aim now is rather to have a couple of these varieties which perform best to mix them together and to sow them as a mixture on the field, have them evolve year by year to create kind of a new population and to be able to brew with this population. But now how does it work for the farmers? Because they're growing a crop which um, presumably is not as good as a conventional crop might be in terms of yield. So you maybe have to pay more for it but you don't know how good it's going to be. I, I don't understand how you kind of share the profits because the farmers are enabling you to make your beer and you couldn't do it without the farmers, but you're also spending time and, and money to make the beer. So how do you work that out? Yeah, exactly. So the first thing is indeed the yield in average will be slightly lower for this land races, but you put less energy in your system. 
as these land races demand less fertilizers, uh, less, less work somehow, less, less inputs. So for the farmers, it's also, even if the quantity is a bit less, uh, it is profitable as it's, it's worth for their farming. It's also high straw, so they capture a lot of carbon, which is interesting for climate change, and they can put it again in their soil, which adds to the humus, which is a very good thing. So if you look at the, the general picture, not only kilograms per hectare, it is, a, it is an interesting thing. But still, as you say, pricing needs to be correct, needs to be fair. And sometimes we have years where the quality is, 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 is less good because rain at a certain point is uh, not, not ideal. Um, so we developed a whole new pricing model between the brewery and the farmers where actually instead of just paying a price per ton, which is the general system, and where if the quality is not good, the farmer isn't selling anything, and so the climate change risk is totally onto the farmer. Um, here we split it in two, and we have partly a price per hectare, partly a price per ton, which means that the brewery um, compensates the farmer for the work he does on his field. And it's not the fault of the farmer if the quality is bad because of climate change. Um, and so that means that the farmer is really sure to have a certain price. Um, and so the second aspect is still a price per ton, but which is defined on the quality of, of the, the cereal. So, for example, in a bad year where um, the quality is not good and we as a brewery cannot brew with it, even if we try to be flexible, um, the farmer gets his price per hectare, he doesn't get his price per ton, but he can still sell his cereals, he, he remains the owner of the cereals, he can still sell it as animal fodder, for example, which makes that for a bad year, his situation is not too bad. In the opposite, for a good year, which we hope, and which is actually most often the case, um, the farmer gets the price per hectare and the price per ton, and which gives him a, a good salary for his work. And this is for us very important because we are earning a good, good I mean, we, we are surviving, we're earning good money with, with brewing our beer, and it's not fair that the farmer who comes before us in the food chain doesn't earn money with his job, with his work. So, as a farmer, I know that I'm going to get certain base price per hectare, no matter what happens. And then, if the, if the cereal is good, you pay me for the cereal, and if the cereal is not good, I do what I like with it. Yeah, that's kind of the case. But what is very important too is that this, this, this quality of cereals, we, we need to redefine it too. Because today the quality criteria are set by the big industry, and they are extremely severe. For artisanal brewers like us, but even artisanal bakers or other people, artisanal craftsmen, we can be more flexible on quality, but we have to redefine which is the basic quality we need. And this we need to really do trials. So every time that the quality is just slightly not enough for the industry, we will do a brewing test and we will inform the, far inform the farmer and say, okay, we, we, need to be, we need to be able to brew good quality beer. That's for sure. Um, but we can try to be a bit more flexible on our, our process of, of brewing and if we find a way to brew with these cereals then it's fine if we don't yeah then we can buy the cereals from the farmer and i know it's only been five years or so but is the brewery happy and are the farmers happy 
everybody is extremely happy. The brewery is really happy because uh, it, it really adds to this whole story, which is such a, a long history of this, this, this way of brewing beer, which is just so particular. And actually, just to tell the history, in the 90s, 2000s, almost all these breweries disappeared of Lambic. And so, or they, 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 they moved into being more industrial breweries, so they, they got rid of the very traditional recipe. And it's really only a handful old brewers who were so stubborn and who, who preserved this way of brewing. And so this connects so well to, this, to these farmers. And on the other hand, of course, the farmers are, are so proud because they know that they, they make the beer too. If they do a good job on the field, then this beer will taste good. And so they know that they are somehow producers of beer. And so instead of being just a producer of cereals and we just a buyer of cereals, we, get, we become collaborators on the same product. And that's, that's just so much added value for everybody. Lucas van der Nabele. And it's hard to imagine that project without this new European regime that allows diversified seed populations. Because crucially, it allows farmers to market seed, grain, that is not absolutely uniform, that contains the diversity needed to adapt to changing conditions. And that's what those Belgian farmers will do, grow the varieties they selected with the brewers as a mixture to allow the population to evolve and respond to climate change. But even old traditional varieties, land races, which are more diverse and adaptable, have their limits. Yumi Biagini works with organic farmers in the south of France, where cereals are an important crop. The farmers there face the same problems Lucas was talking about, that modern varieties just don't suit their way of farming. So many of them turned back to famous old traditional varieties of wheat, such as Rouge de Bordeaux. But now, things are not going too well. The problem now is our condition in our region, we are in south of France, are getting uh, every year more drier, and we can face it. We can, we, can, we can feel it in farmers too. So right now, it's like all the traditional and local varieties we're using, conservating, multiplicating, the yields uh, already are lower than the modern varieties. But now with climate change, it's getting worse. So we, we need, we have to, to find and, uh, and to develop new, new peasants varieties that are getting uh, from the traditional varieties, but that we can mix uh, to create new uh, varieties that are adapted to our new conditions. But it's very strange because I think there's this idea among people who know about land races and traditional varieties, there's this idea that they are perfect for the, for the environment. But of course, if the environment is changing, then where do you go to find adapted varieties? Yeah, that's the problem. And the idea we have is that through this kind of network, 
our national network, but also European network. We can get in touch with uh, groups that are far away from our land, but that are more in more in drier zones, in more Mediterranean uh, climate, like in the south of Italy, south of Spain. And there, these are uh, places that where uh, groups of producers of uh, have been working, but in condition that used to be arid. Uh, for a very uh, a longer time than our area. So what we want to do is to have exchanges with these collectives, these groups, um, to to find solutions together. Because uh, if we stay in our just local group, uh, we can't manage to have all the resources. And uh, exchanges between groups of farmers is really a way we, we see that uh, we can make a mix of tradition and innovation because they are the people that are innovating. The traditional varieties we have, they are the, the result of a thousands year of uh, uh, producers' innovation. And are the farmers um, are the farmers keen to do it? Are they are they really interested, or do they just see this as an emergency? No, they are the ones that are asking us to to find solutions and to get in touch with other collectives. Uh, this is difficult because most of the time they don't have a lot of time to dedicate to a, a trip or uh, a journey to another country. But when we manage to do it in the right season, uh, it's some of the action that have really sense for them. How do you think consumers, the people who buy the bread made from the grain or the, or the beer made from the grain, how do you think they will respond to these new traditional varieties? I think the problem we have is that we're not very good at communicating and uh, we're so bus- busy. Of so, There is so many work to do that we don't put our energy in knowing how we can communicate and how we can get to the consumer to um, make him understand what we're doing. But I think if we collectively work on this communication about how um, adapting to new climate change conditions is about not only getting all varieties but also innovating a very concrete work in fields that is made by uh, collective and groups of producers, I think they can understand it. And also what I want to say is that even if we make, uh, we make new varieties, they still are uh, traditional and population varieties. That means that they have a, a, an important diversity inside uh, and also that the, we want to select this uh, population varieties not only on yields and uh, climate change criteria but also on gustative and nutritive criteria because we know that the, the wheat for example that is produced and transformed in the industry it has uh, lost a lot of its gustative and nutritive uh, properties so that is one of the points we have to communicate to the consumer because eating bread which is from even a mix of uh, traditional varieties which is a new varieties will have more nutritive uh, um, interest and gustative interest that the, the, the flour they will buy in the supermarket yeah sure but they'll have to pay more for it
so we have to make the government and public authorities uh, support this kind of conception and uh, we think as a farmers organization that we lost the price of what really means uh, getting a healthy and sustainable food and today we know that a lot of people aren't economically able to get that food so we have to make some food policies uh, with support of public authorities to make that possible. Yumi Viagini of Biosivam de Lourdes in France. I've been interested in agricultural biodiversity for a long, long time, and even did my bit of campaigning back in the 90s. So I'm really pleased that groups like Let's Liberate Diversity, who've been much more single-minded than I ever was, managed to get the EU to accept more diversity. Anyway, that's it from me for another episode. Thanks to the select few who support the show with a donation. You can join them at eatthispodcast.com slash supporters. And a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts can also help the show to find new listeners. I'll put links to Lucas's Brewery and Yumi's organization in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. And don't forget, you can follow me and drop me a line on Twitter at eatpodcast and Instagram at eatthispodcast or even via dear old email, jeremy at eatthispodcast.com. Till the next time, from me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.